Well, good morning. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, it's my privilege to be able to share God's Word with us this morning. And uh, if you have a Bible, if you wouldn't mind turning to Psalm 131. Psalm 131 says this, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Well, over the last few years, I've kind of taken an interest in construction projects. And so as I've been doing construction projects, little kind of home repairs and things like that, I've tried to kind of analyze and try to understand why the builder did things the way that they did. And my wife used to be a real estate agent, and so I got to go through and look at a number of different houses and kind of just look at the layouts and look at how they did certain things and just try to put my mind in the eye into the mind of the builder. And, and sometimes that was helpful, and sometimes I could kind of learn things from that. But sometimes I looked at things that people did, and I was just baffled. For example... I don't understand why people think it's a good idea to put carpeting in bathrooms. I had a relative who lived down in Florida, didn't like the air conditioning all that much, and so you had all that humidity on top of taking showers and dripping water all over the carpet. There's things like that that are baffling, that are difficult to understand. We me and Stephanie looked at one house, and it looked literally like the apocalypse happened. These people had a shed that they could have put their lawnmower in. But instead of putting it in the shed, this was in the middle of the winter when we went there, and the lawnmower was right in the middle of the yard covered with snow, as if the person was going along mowing their lawn, the apocalypse happened, and then snow covered it. In that same yard, there were a whole bunch of trees in the backyard. And this yard was a very, very small yard. And yet there were trees that had grown up. And my question was, how did the trees get there? I mean, was there an extended period of time where they didn't mow the lawn that these trees would grow up in a yard that was that small? This past week, Pastor Phil and I were looking at the light switches outside of the closets downstairs at the church. And rather than having the light switch right outside the closet door, which you would expect, they were offset towards the opposite wall about a foot away. And we were trying to think about why they might have done it that way, and we were baffled why they did it that way. I was watching HGTV this past week, and on this one show they had what they humorously referred to as a galley bathroom. It was this long bathroom, about 20 feet long. It had a good-sized walk-in closet. It had a door going to the outside, and it had a big window right behind the toilet in case you wanted anybody to be able to look in. And you think, why, why did they do that? Why did they put a toilet right in front of the window? Why do they have a door to the outside? Why do they have a walk-in closet inside a bathroom? And you look at these things and they're just baffling sometimes. And I think sometimes events that happen in our life are baffling like that. 
Specifically, sometimes it's hard for us to understand why bad things happen. And when we think about that question, why do bad things happen, we know the general kind of trajectory of Scripture. We know generally why bad things happen. We know that, it happen, that bad things happen because of the fall. Adam and Eve sinned. They brought sin and death into the world. And, and we're all sinners. And so there's death and suffering in the world. That's kind of the general story uh, uh, that we see in the Scripture. And we know that. We understand that. That makes sense to us. The wages of sin is death, etc., etc. But it gets more difficult when that suffering, when that death hits closer to home. It gets more difficult to understand when our loved one comes down with a debilitating illness. It gets more difficult to understand when we're not able to see our loved one who is in distress. It gets more difficult to understand when our retirement account is dwindling and we're wondering what's going to happen in the future. That's an entirely different ballgame. C.S. Lewis in his book, A Grief Observed, once said this, he says, we were promised sufferings. They were part of the program. We were even told, blessed are they that mourn, and I accept it. I've got nothing that I hadn't bargained for. Of course, it is different when the thing happens to oneself, not to others. And in reality, not imagination. So when it hits close to home, when we deal personally with suffering, that question comes to our mind perhaps, why did God allow this to happen? Oftentimes we have trouble with this question, why do bad things uh, happen? Secondly, because the suffering that we experience in this world seems a little bit senseless and arbitrary. I mean, sometimes you can see why suffering occurs. You know, a person does something wrong and so they're put into jail, or a person who doesn't take care of themselves. You say a person who uh, doesn't exercise, doesn't eat well, smokes a pack of cigarettes a day, abuses drugs and alcohol, and then when they get sick, you're sad, but you're not surprised. Uh, on the other hand, if someone is healthy and works out and eats right and takes supplements every day, when that person gets sick, you're not only sad, but you're also shocked. And oftentimes, suffering happens in a way that seems arbitrary. And so we have these questions like, why do young children sometimes get cancer? Or why do sometimes natural disasters take out people's lives and livelihood and then spare others? With the COVID virus, why are some people uh, dying and on ventilators and other people don't even know that they have it? Why are some people born in poverty and some people are born in affluence? Why are some people born in families that are very loving and supportive and others in families where they're abused? We don't have answers to these questions. So the question is, how do we deal with them? How do we deal with these questions? How do we deal with questions where there aren't any logical answers, where we can't come up with a good answer to kind of satisfy that mental anxiety or that mental uh, dissonance that we feel in our souls? How do we process these things mentally when all we see in these situations is darkness? Well, I believe that this psalm that we're looking at today provides us with some answers. It's one of the shortest psalms in the Bible, but I think one of the most profound psalms. 
It was written by David. We don't know when David wrote this psalm, but what we do know is that there were a number of situations in David's life where he may have asked those questions, God, why are you allowing this to happen? For example, he puts his faith in God. He defeats Goliath, and then Saul tries to kill him. And Saul goes on this maniacal tirade trying to kill him. And he may have wondered, God, why are you allowing me to to experience this? Why don't you take Saul off the throne? Why don't you protect me from his wrath? Why do I always have to be on the run? He may have questioned why his family was taken away from him at Ziglag and captured. He may have wondered why his best friend, Jonathan, was killed in battle. So how does David respond to these things? He responds to these things by saying this. He says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. So when he says, my eyes are not lifted up, this is in contrast to what might be referred to in the Scripture as haughty eyes. Eyes that are lifted up. And so in saying this, he's saying that he's taking a posture of humility when when it comes to the difficult questions in life. Now it's natural and it's human to ask questions. And I don't think there's anything wrong or sinful about asking questions. We see even Jesus Himself, when He was on the cross, said, My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? But what does make the difference is the posture into which we come to those questions. Whether we come to those questions with humility. Let's say that you have a five-year-old child. And you tell the five-year-old child, Hey, I just wanted to let you know, tomorrow we are going to Rochester to see Uncle Jack. And maybe the five-year-old doesn't understand what's going on and he or she says, Mommy, Daddy, um, why are we going to see Uncle Jack? But then you have a teenager. And the teenager, you tell the teenager the same thing. You say, tomorrow we're going to Rochester to see Uncle Jack. And maybe the teenager folds his or her arms and says, why do we have to go to Rochester to see Uncle Jack? Now, that's a very different question than the question that the child asked. The child was asking out of curiosity. The uh, adolescent was asking out of pride. In essence saying, I don't think this is a good idea. In essence saying, I think there would be better ways that we could spend our time. I think that I know better than you know. I think that what we're going to do is foolish and a waste of time. It's the same question, but it's the heart with which we come to that question. And so when bad things happen, when we come with a heart of humility, we might say, well, God, I don't understand why this is happening. I really, it doesn't make sense to me. But I trust that you as a perfect Heavenly Father know what you're doing. And I trust you. Versus a heart of pride that comes, God, I don't know what's going on here. This doesn't make sense to me. And honestly, I don't think that you know what you're doing. Now, if we're Christians, we probably wouldn't say that. You know, we might not even admit that out loud, uh, even in our own hearts. But sometimes we think that way. We get to a point where we think about these questions so much, and we think that we know better than God. If we were God, then we would 
do a better job. So David takes a posture of humility rather than a posture of pride. And then he continues. He says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. The word for occupy is the Hebrew word that also can mean walk. And you might also translate this as, I do not walk in things that are too great and too marvelous for me. He chooses not to dwell on questions that cannot be answered. There are some things that he acknowledges are mysteries that only make sense in the heart of God. And he's not going to fixate and dwell on those things and walk in those things. You see, as human beings, we are very limited in our understanding of the universe. John Stumbo, the president of Christian Missionary Alliance, once said this. He said, at human birth, the brain weighs on average 14 ounces. It usually reaches its maximum size at age 15, proving the size of the brain has nothing to do with intelligence level. At its maximum size, the brain weighs an average of 46 ounces, slightly less than 3 pounds. In liquid measurement, there's about, that's about a big gulp from the soda machine at the local gas station. There's no way for medical professionals to prove this, but the old theory was that we only use about 10% of our brain capacity. If that were true, and we only start out with a big gulp in the first place, we're down to about a quarter pounder with cheese by the time we're done. And we think that with, one quarter, with our quarter pounder with cheese, we're going to comprehend the infinite, decipher the mysteries of the millenniums. We're going to answer all the questions? Right. Isn't it logically impossible that we as finite creatures could ever understand the infinite? You see, sometimes we cry out to God and we say, God, why are you allowing this to happen? And I think in some cases, God is like, He wants to test us. He wants to strengthen our faith so He doesn't give, faith so he doesn't give us the answer. But I think sometimes He doesn't answer us because He's not able to tell us. We're not able to humanly comprehend it. My son Paul is six months old. And let's say he gets sick and I want him to take some medicine. Now, would it be helpful if I said to him, now son, uh, I want you to know you have an ear infection. Uh, there's fluid that's built up in your ears. There's bacteria that is causing you difficulties. That's why you're experiencing pain. That's why you keep scratching your ear. And you need to take this medicine, even though it doesn't taste good. You have to take it because it's going to kill the bacteria. It's going to stop the bacteria from replicating. And after you take it, you might experience some side effects. You might have a stomach ache or some other effects. But it's going to help you. And it's going to be a really good thing for you. And eventually, uh, after a week or so, you're going to, this is going to be eliminated from your body. Now, I could tell my son that, who's six months old, but he's not going to understand it. It wouldn't make any difference to him because he's six months old. He doesn't understand how medication works. All he understands is that medicine doesn't taste very good. And so maybe he tries to spit it out. In a similar way, if God were to try to explain to us why certain things happen, our mind would just be blown. We wouldn't be able to comprehend it. I mean, let's say that you're asking God, God, why did you let this person come down with cancer 
And he might respond and say, well, I let this person come down with cancer because if they didn't come down with cancer, then this wouldn't have happened. And if this wouldn't have happened, then that wouldn't have happened. And if that wouldn't have happened, then you wouldn't have met this person. If you didn't meet this person, then you wouldn't have come to know this. And if you didn't come to know this, then you wouldn't have reached out and done this to that person. If you hadn't had reached out and done this to that person, they wouldn't have known that, and they wouldn't have done this. And you'd be just sitting there like, right, sure, sounds good. And ultimately, we'd have to trust God anyways. Because we can't understand the mind of God. His ways are higher than our ways. You know, and I think of the movie uh, Bruce Almighty. You know, I think in the main character, he's like thinks that he knows better than God. And then he steps into the place of God for a time, and God allows him to do that, and he just completely messes up the world because one thing that he does affects something else which affects something else that he doesn't think about. And we can't understand all those connections. We can't understand how the universe works, but somehow when we're experiencing difficulties, we're, we want a simple, easy answer, and often there is no simple, easy answer. And ultimately, all we can do is trust in a God who's communicated that He's for us that He'll never leave us nor forsake us. And so David says that he doesn't occupy himself with questions like that. He doesn't occupy himself with things that are too great and too mighty for him. He chooses to take a posture of humility and chooses to trust in the Lord even when he doesn't see the logic in a situation. So we see in this passage first that There's two things that David doesn't do. He doesn't take a posture of arrogance. He says, my eyes are not lifted too high. Second, he says that he does not fixate on the things of this life that are too great and too mighty beyond his comprehension. But then he says one thing that he does do. In verse 2, he says, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Now we have a tremendous we have tremendous English translations of the Bible. Of course, the the Bible wasn't written in English; it was written uh, mostly in Hebrew or Greek. And we have great translations, number of different translations that generally do a pretty good job of conveying the original meaning. But I think that in this passage they get it wrong. You see this image of a weaned child, and you think you know a weaned child. Of course, a child who's no longer nursing, who's recently stopped nursing. And you think about, and I think to myself, how is this a picture of calm and quiet? How is a child who's been weaned a picture of calm and quiet? I mean, if anything, you would think that a, a child who's been weaned would be less dependent upon its mother and would be more mobile and more getting into things because they don't have to worry about eating. So what is this image that David is communicating about calming and quieting the soul? Well, there's a, the word that's uh, translated uh, weaned in this passage can also be translated a different way. It can also be translated as to deal fully with or to be contented. So we might translate this passage differently like a contented child with its mother like a contented child is my soul within me. 
suddenly when we translate this passage this way, it starts to make sense. That picture starts to come to life. So like I said, my son is six months old, and so the last six months I've had a crash course in uh, what babies are like. And I've found that uh, I've found many different ways to entertain the baby, and, and oftentimes I can keep a smile on his face. But you get to a point where things can turn dark really quickly, where he'll be all happy and having a great time, and then sometimes within a moment that smile can turn to a mushroom that can turn into screaming uncontrollably. And sometimes I can bring him back from that and put a smile on his face again. But sometimes, when he hasn't eaten in a while and he hasn't been with his mother, nothing works. He'll just keep screaming and screaming and screaming until he gets to be with his mother. And then as soon as he's with his mother, within seconds most of the time, he's completely quiet. Early on, I remember trying to put him to sleep and I would rock him and talk quietly to him and, and sometimes nothing I would do would work and then I would give him to his mother and then within a couple minutes he would be completely zonked out. His arms outstretched. Just completely calm. Completely quiet. Going from screaming uncontrollably to being quiet and calm with his mother. I think that's the image that David paints of a child content being close to his mother. And in that moment when the child is close to his mother, nothing else matters. Nothing else will fix the situation and nothing else matters. He needs to be close to his mother. I think this teaches us something very profound and very important about living in the midst of trials and in the midst of questioning. And I think it teaches us that if we want to be calm, we have to be close. If we want to experience peace, if we want to be calm, then we have to be close to our perfect Heavenly Father. See, the passage teaches us that the key to having peace is not figuring out all the questions in life. It's not having an answer to everything that comes along. Why did God allow this to happen? Why did God allow that to happen? We'll never have the answers to all of those questions. But peace, calm comes when we run close to our Heavenly Father. There's a pastor years ago who went to the home of a child who was dying. The parents called for for him to come and, and talk with the child. He had an incurable illness and he wasn't going to make it very long. And so the pastor spent a good deal of time with him, spent a good time, deal of time that night with him. And then after he left, the child passed away. In the morning, the pastor returned and of course the parents were distraught and he tried to console them as much as he could. But then his parents asked the pastor a question and he said can you explain something something weird happened we don't understand why it happened they said in a couple hours before our child died and then right near when he was dying about to die we saw him taking one hand and grasping the other hand specifically grasping his ring finger 
the pastor knew exactly what he was doing. See, the pastor, knowing that this child was about to enter into eternity, wanted to make sure that he knew where he was going. He wanted to communicate to the child the importance of knowing God. And so the child was unresponsive. He didn't ever speak to the pastor, even acknowledge his presence. But the pastor went through and grabbed his little hand. He, he said, thee, grabbing his thumb, because there's no other. He grabbed the next finger, he said, the Lord. Then he grabbed the next one, he said, is. The next one he grabbed was, he grabbed was mine because you have to make personal commitment and relationship. He grabbed the last one. He said, shepherd, the one who owns, who died, who cares, and loves me. So he said, the, the Lord is my shepherd. And in this child's last moments, he reached out to God. He grasped that ring finger, not understanding completely what was going on probably, but saying, the Lord, he's my shepherd. Running to his heavenly father. Midst of the most difficult moments of his life, he drew close to his heavenly father. With the little bit of understanding he had, he reached out to him. What if we did the same thing? What if during the most difficult and uncertain events in our life, we reached out to our heavenly father? Ladies and gentlemen, let's draw close. Let's lean in to our Savior. Because if we want to be calm, if we want to have peace, we've got to be close to our God. In John chapter 16, Jesus is about to die on the cross and He speaks to His disciples. And I find this passage very interesting. It says, Behold, the, Lord is, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home. Does that sound familiar? Scattered each to his own home. And will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus says that we can have peace in him. When we draw close to Him, we can experience peace. We can be calm when we're close to our Lord and Savior. David finishes the psalm by saying this, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. And I'll add to that, O church, hope in the Lord today, tomorrow, and forever. Because God is a refuge for those who trust in Him. And when we draw close to Him, we can be calm. We can experience peace. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you that when we run to you, we can be calm. We can experience peace. Even in the midst of circumstances that we don't understand, even when we don't understand why you're doing what you are doing, Lord, we trust you. We run to you. And we find rest and we find refuge in you. Lord, I pray for anybody under the sound of my voice today who is really struggling with that question of why you're allowing certain things to happen in their life. 
Lord, I pray that they would run to You and they'd find rest in You. I pray that they would trust that You do have a plan. That Your ways are higher than our ways. That You can bring good even out of the most incredible darkness, Lord. God, help us to trust You. Help us to believe that You are good and that You are for us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.